Hey man, Chandran, um, huge privilege. Um, thank you very much for coming in. Thank um, you for having me. I mean, huge, huge honor. Um, you, you're a big deal in the West. Um, I know you best, I guess, as a developmental economist. Um, you, you're like kind of like an environmentalist uh, advocate, and you've got these amazing views on um, reworking how we look at the economy and how we look at growth and how we look at consumption. And you've, you've thought up this new model for where we live in Asia, and I think it's hugely interesting. Um, but I want to reference the last time we met, um, it was also during an interview, and you told me this amazing, like, kind of like, it's almost like a rap or like a poem. And it was like, I beg your pardon. Okay, so can we start off with you telling us that poem? Yeah, I think it's, uh, well, thank you for having me. And uh, it's not so much as a poem, it's a little kind of uh, story yeah. that essentially tries to describe with anecdotes uh, why, as I said, you know, why I have a different worldview. And it typically started when I was sometimes, you know, speaking to large audiences uh, or audiences in uh, Europe, Australia, the US. And I often felt it was interesting to actually tell them why yeah. people like us from this yeah. part of the world had a different view. Yeah. And it also came from my view that too many people from this part of the world don't express themselves. Yeah, that's right. So it's the Asian way, isn't it? It's the Asian way. Uh, and so I just wanted to say, by bringing all these anecdotes together, uh, why it is quite natural for me to have a different worldview, and why my worldview is probably uh, to be as much as valid as anybody speaking from anywhere in the United States, etc. So it goes something like this. Are, okay. are you ready? Yeah, all right. Okay. Shoot, man. So it goes something like this. Um, you know, I was born in an uh, Indian Hindu home, and I was brought up uh, in uh, in a fairly sort of uh, uh, modest uh, modest uh, upbringing. Uh, I got up in the morning and I prayed to uh, Hindu gods. Uh, my my mom and dad or lit the, the the prayer room lamp, and I prayed to gods that looked like elephants, donkeys, monkeys, and all of those things. And I was cool with that. And uh, of course, later I found out images of my gods fornicating on temple walls, etc. And I was cool with that too. Um, that uh, made me, of course, have a much more liberal attitude towards uh, religion, etc. And I often tell my Muslim friends, uh, I don't know why you guys get so uptight when someone in the West uh, draws a, a image of the prophet with a bomb on his head. You should go to my temples <laughs> yeah. and see what the gods are up to. So just kind of relax. They were into Pilates before it became a middle class, upper middle class uh, uh, obsession, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> and then at, uh, then at 7 p.m. we went to school. Uh, after having prayed to all the Hindu gods, uh, I went to school and uh, my school was a Catholic missionary school and I was taught by strange white guys in white gowns and they told me that God was white, blue-eyed and blonde. And uh, I, learned the, I learned the Lord's Prayer, everything, and I had no problems moving from elephants uh, and uh, strange-looking gods to the white guy as God. And uh, so I was, it taught me a great deal of tolerance and understanding and learned the prayer by heart. 
and uh, but you know, in those days we were also. Uh, I was very interested that these uh, strange white men like to cane little boys. Uh, had us bending over our desk and caning us. Now that I'm grown up, I understand that the Pope's looking into those kinds of things. So I'm <laughs> connecting the dots uh, many years later, what these guys were into. But at that time, you're kind of innocent. Yeah. There was no, you know, there was no report to be made. Um, and then after school in that sort of environment, we'd go home and we'd drop by. Um, I lived, we lived very close to the, the masjid. So we'd go back to the masjid and uh, go, go by the, the, the masjid and the, the, the imam would talk to us. And till today I have to say the call for prayer from the masjid, I find the most spiritual call. Uh, anywhere and very in the world. ancient as well. And very ancient, and wherever I go in the world, the different parts of the world, particularly the Muslim Muslim world, I try and stay next to the masjid because I like to listen yeah. to. Yes, always, I stay next to the masjid because I like the call, and I try and differentiate the different calls. And those who are Muslims will know what I'm speaking about. Uh, uh, it's uh, unfortunate in Malaysia today that uh, some of the mosques will not allow uh, someone like me in. Uh, so that's a step backwards. Um, but my point is that, um, so when I see uh, men in beards, uh, skull caps and long gowns with backpacks, I don't walk the other way, uh, like uh, some of my Western friends who immediately think of uh, danger, you know, strange men with, uh, with beards and gowns walking down the road, because those are my brothers. Yeah. Uh, so I don't see Islam as some alien concept yeah. that is a threat to the modern world. So you were raised as, as an Indian Hindu. You That's went right. to Christian missionary school. Yeah. You live around masjids and you're quite... Um, well, let me finish the story though. Okay. So there's another part of it. Right. And so then in the evenings, we would go to the coffee shop, which is run by Chinese guys. Right, so then I, uh, you know, forgot my yellow brothers. You forgot that you forgot the Chinese. Okay, <laughs> so I was brought up uh, with <coughs> Chinese people all around me, and you know I still remember the chasu pao that we used to have, and the chakwe tiao and the Hokkien me. So here's a Hindu Indian uh, brought up with by Christian missionaries, lived amongst with Malays, adored the 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 call for prayer from the masjid and then learn to eat with chopsticks at the age of five, like most Malaysian Indians of all, all, all races do. So when I see Chinese, um, I tell my Europe, I don't see a threat. I see hardworking people, thousands of years of civilization, sacrifice everything to educate, work hard, etc. So today, you know, as the Western world is fearful of the Chinese, uh, I feel we understand. So my point is that, uh, those of us in Malaysia, people with our upbringing, who've been exposed to this multilateral, multicultural uh, kind of upbringing, we have a responsibility to speak up. So I used to say uh, that, I, that John McCain can speak for us. We should speak up. Absolutely. When I have American foreign secretaries talking about Southeast Asia, I say, what the hell do they know? we should speak up because I was brought up in that society. Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, Chinese, Christianity. We have a great understanding of what the world looks like, yet we have remained silent. We have outsourced all our thinking to naive uh, Western diplomats 
who pretend that they understand. And so that's why I take it upon myself to share this. And that's why I use this little story to say, I'm sorry, my worldview is different. Hear me out. Yeah. Well, you know what? Nothing pisses me off, right? Than going to like Times Bookstore or MPH and seeing books on China, um, you know, un- un- unraveling the Chinese miracle. And they're written by Westerners. Um, you know, people who write about Malaysia and Mahathir and, you know, um, foreign ambassadors to, to Malaysia, but they're American. Um, what pisses me off is that sometimes we, we have to rely on, on a Western interpretation of, of us in Asia for our appreciation of our own people. That's really weird. As, as you quite rightly point out, we, we, we in Malaysia come from a multicultural background. But why don't, why are we in fact, what appears to be we're moving backwards, we're moving more towards the right. Why aren't we becoming more tolerant of each other, but in fact we're going the opposite direction? Well, of course, that, that's, a, that's a multifaceted sort of topic you've raised there. But if I could just discuss the, the topic of why the books and why the narratives are dominated by Western, speak, uh, Western writers and thought leaders. Uh, I wrote a piece about two months ago uh, about essentially Asia needs a world-class publishing house. I, you know, uh, I've written two books, uh, and I'm very grateful for the publishers. But both times, I had to go to a multitude of publishers in the West to get published until I found one who was willing uh, to take on what is not seen as uh, politically correct, nor attuned to the current uh, narrative in the West. So when it comes to publishing, uh, the, the dominance of essentially Anglo-Saxon publishers particularly from the UK and the US, is, is a stranglehold. So if you've got, you're writing in English, uh, you need to appease them. You need to be politically correct, you need to be flavor of the month, and maybe they will let you in. Uh, that includes the, what they call the publishing agents, etc. So I wrote a piece about that. Now, why aren't any agents investing in this? And is, part, it, is it because there's no market? There's a huge market. So, so why I don't argue. They, why don't they do it? Because uh, because most of the people with money in Asia do not understand what that market is, and secondly, of course, books as well have, have seen to sort of uh, pass their their time. But books are actually returning. But it's not about whether it's electronic, whether it's a book per se or it's electronic. Um, Asians with money are essentially still subservient to the latest fad from the West. So when it comes to publishing, they have surrendered. They let Western publishers dominate. Uh, Asian publishers don't go into this. Of course, you have Chinese publishers, etc. The article that I wrote argued basically that more elite Asians more know more. Let's take ASEAN for example. Uh, elite uh, Malaysians know more about the United States, Britain, and Germany than they know about Cambodia, exactly. Vietnam, or exactly. Laos. Right? But I'm is, just at this isn't, week. Isn't that an advantage? To that whom? we know more about them than they know more about us. That is a, that is a good thing to know, yeah. but it uh, but it's also dangerous because we don't seem to be forging the the link and creating and describing what happened. So let's take an example of something. I'm teaching a, a, a one of our leadership programs this week. I've got 27 people from seven different con- eight different countries from ASEAN. So one of the things we started was to talk about history. Hardly anybody knew about the Vietnam War and when it ended. Are you serious? I'm serious. That's only about 50 years ago. Not a long time. It's not 50. 40, 35 40, 40, years ago. Yeah. Well, All the right? 70s. 
it ended in 1975. Yeah. But beyond when it ended was all the atrocities that took place. Yeah. But most Asians will know about the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot. And when they think of Cambodia, they think of the killing fields. Genocide, yeah. But they don't think about what was the catalyst and the precursor for what happened there. They don't know that uh, someone like Harry, uh, like uh, Henry Kissinger, by you know any decent level of justice, was a war criminal when it came to what happened in those countries. Because we, is, we yet, give a free pass. Yet Kissinger celebrated in this part of the world. Of course, because subservient Asians. Yeah. So subservient Asians look for authors from the West writing about this part of the world. A Western author, and there are a few who have written about it, but not many, but it'll not be a bestseller, who essentially accuses Kissinger and Nixon of war crimes, will not get a good publisher in the US and will not be a bestseller. It'll be a cult book. It'll be somewhere in the history department, but it will not be a bestseller. Right. So that's why these books continue. Secondly, if you write something very honest about the history, uh, you have to be exceptionally good at doing it. And, and it's a rare person who has that access to be able to write those things. And I'll give you one final example in this topic of the publication. The history of, of the world, and especially the history of Asia, has been written through the lens of Western historians. Some of them have seen it uh, basically through a very imperial lens. Uh, some of them try, but those are a minority. Let's take, for example, uh, a, a book written and released about, two, I think about a year and a half ago, by the former US, uh, UN undersecretary, Shashi Taru. So Shashi wrote what is probably the first book that got international recognition about what the Brits did to India. He called it the rape and pillage. It was, and and it was wasn't it? It was, and it was called the Inglorious Empire. But it took 70 years before an Indian of standing could write a book, get it published, and then get some sort of international recognition for it, and it's a bit of a bestseller. But Sashi, in that book, essentially called Winston Churchill genocidal. Now, I don't suppose so repeat, that... repeat that. Winston Churchill was genocidal. Yeah, so you he's, can probably go. The, he's probably the most celebrated British yeah, Prime Minister uh, of all and time. And in the West, it's always references to Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill, the way he referenced Mahatma Gandhi and people like that, was a racist. And Sashi Taru documents all of this. Now, it's not likely that another book like that will be published. Firstly, because it's not likely that uh, Indians with that standing will, get, will desire to write that. Secondly, will they get a publisher? So when you look at the, 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 the amount that needs to be written about that period from an Indian perspective, it's not written. Now, most of the books on the Vietnam War have been written by Americans and Westerners. Some, to be fair, have been sympathetic to the way, but they have not gone deep enough. Yeah. So most times when you talk about the Vietnam War, people talk about how many thousand, how many thousand uh, you know, the thousands of Americans who died? Do you know how many Americans died in Vietnam War? A couple hundred thousand? No, yeah. 50,000. Are you serious? Yeah. And how many Vietnamese died? Over three million. You're kidding. Yes. So people don't talk about these things. Yet even in Asia, when we talk about the Vietnam War, we talk about the American view of what happened. So history, this history of the world needs to be redone, re-looked at. Even the history of Malaysia, Chin Peng and all of those. 
uh, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. We don't properly know. Yet. We don't. I don't properly know who's in who's yeah. in the right and who's in the wrong. Yeah. Well, so well, you know, but we, clearly, if Chin Peng was fighting the British, then he was the bad guy. Yeah. He yeah, was yeah. the commie. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But today we need to go back and look and think. What does that? Even as I say this today. I'm slightly nervous that most Malaysians will think that I'm some crackpot, but I'm not. I mean, the history is a lot more complex than that, but I suspect no Malaysian publisher might even want to get a book out that talks about that whole history. You know, funny enough, I was reading, I am still reading Mahathir Mohamad's Doctor in the House, his, his autobiography, and he spends at least at least 10 to 15 pages on the British occupation. He, he was a staunch nationalist. He was a staunch Malayalist, right? Um, and he talks about how greedy and how self-serving the British were in their occupation of Asia, and specifically Malaysia, Singapore, and how they wantonly signed away basically Kedah and Perlis to the Thais in return yes. for, I think, Singapore or something. That's why and Thailand was never colonized. Exactly, right? Um, and, and the way they basically just sucked the whole region dry to um, enrich the British Empire. Of course. And uh, they just put all well, the That was what Empire was about. Yeah. Exactly, exactly, right? Um, I, of, of course, it, it passed muster because he is Mahathir Mohamed and he gets published. Um, but a lot of people, don't, I mean, we, we celebrate the British occupation. We see them as, 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 as being the, the, the people who have given us a, a justice system, uh, a working administration by and large. Um, but we don't realize how, how fucked up it was. Do you know what I mean? Right? Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, this is the story of empire throughout the world, okay? Um, I know British friends, the moment I go into this, you know, liberals, who find it very uncomfortable talking about this. Why? Uh, because they have never been told this. There are some uh, who are very much on the left who would, uh, who would completely agree. But even just uh, three months ago, I was at uh, a dinner in Hong Kong with essentially writers, and uh, I was asked to share a view about uh, essentially China. And I said, you know, the Western world's treatment of China is almost xen is xenophobic. Uh, you can't find a, a, a fair article about China in the FT, the Economist, or anywhere else. Why? In fact, a few years ago, I wrote a piece called um, A Question for Western Journalists. Can China do anything right? Right? Because you don't hear anything. And frankly, I do know some of the journalists who work for some of the top publications I mentioned, and they have admitted privately that um, if they wrote anything right about China, positive about China, it would not be published. The editors are not interested in anything positive about China. No, are you sure? Because I mean, I used to work at Reuters and Bloomberg, and I think that if you wrote a balanced article, which is well researched on both sides, with good attributions, even if it's an op ed, you can get it through. And I think that's. Maybe that's too sweeping a generalization, don't you think? It is a bit of a generalization, but I would say it is, it is my experience. Yeah. And I watch, uh, or at least I don't know when you were working for Reuters and Bloomberg. And I think Reuters and Bloomberg is slightly different perhaps, uh, because more, uh, Bloomberg in particular more business oriented rather than political. But on the political side, um, you know, get someone to go and do research. The last year, of the economists' coverage of China, and see if uh, the positive stories about China exceed five percent. It'd be an interesting little bit of research for a journalism student, actually. Interesting. Um, uh, it rarely happens now. So when I was at that discussion in Hong Kong, and I argued that essentially 
the inability of uh, particularly Western powers like the United States to come to terms with the new reality of the rise of the rest in this, t in this time, exemplified by the rise of the China, is on one level uh, a, a reflection on the inability to accept the rise of inferior people in their minds. Mm -hmm. And then I talked about India, etc. And it was very difficult for them to accept the brutality, particularly, of what had happened in India, as uh, documented by Shashi. And then people revert to really ridiculous things, that, uh, such as the Brits civilized India, the Brits uh, helped India to essentially get the English language. And these, these arguments are so empty, they don't, they don't deserve further discussion. But you can see where people go, because if you have been essentially the dominant civil economic power, you cannot see through what the pain and humiliation of others. It's very difficult. I lived in Africa, and many white South Africans during the time of apartheid couldn't see what was wrong with that system, because after all, Incredible. they were taking care of black people. After all, these people are uncivilized. They didn't know anything, and at least we brought them some prosperity and we gave them jobs as servants. But it happens until today. We live in this internet era, you know, where we've got information on our fingertips. And this whole Madam Butterfly Syndrome continues until today. Chandran, we hero... Okay, let's, let's call a spade a spade, right? We hero worship um, the white people. They come out here, they can command huge salaries. Um, when they walk through waltz through hotels and shopping malls, you know, shopping uh, attendants fawn at their feet and it's fall called at their... It's called Bangsa Shopping Centre. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Come Christmas, why? I get served second. Why? Why? why <laughs> well, it, but you have to understand why. At one level, um, it's three, three, four centuries of colonization. You cannot erase what is essentially uh, a traumatic experience in the period of 50, 60 years. And post-colonial era, maybe the, the soldiers left, the administrators left, but the there was something- remains. Not only that, but the economic power continued. So I joke, because I think we have to take our responsibility too, that the fight against colonization all over the, coloni uh, over the colonies was one of trying to essentially get the imperial powers to leave. So whether you're in Indonesia trying to get rid of the Dutch or Mozambique trying to get rid of the Portuguese or Malaysia trying to get rid of the, the Brits, um, it was one of essentially getting rid of them. But then our elites who led some of that fight essentially said, we want you out, but we want to be like you because they had no other terms of reference. The only terms of reference was that terms of reference, and the better life was exemplified by, I want the mansion on Kenny Hills. I want the big bungalow. On I the want hill. the big white and black bungalow. <laughs> I want to, uh, right. you know, and uh, I need the, the master too. of the unwashed messes. So we're doing the same thing just to the bungalows. So in a way, that's what's happened. Uh, but the class war you refer to in the economic, that's, that's a reflection of the world we live in. But in terms of aping your colonial masters, that's the same. That is, the, that is one this of the This is the same in South Africa today. It's one of the unspoken crimes. Yeah, so I mean, you we were, were talking we about, you were talking about, you know, Westerners in Asia. 
well, they get a free pass, right? Especially the the Western male. You can be third class. The British, the Australians, and you come here, and somehow you will get a free pass. Now, well, what's that phrase called? Filth, filth, right? Filth in London, try Hong Kong. And I don't want this to sound racist. No, 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 you're right. right. But this is not about. But this is essentially about economic power and the continued subservience of the formerly colonized. This would take time. The opposite of that should not be racism, right? Against people from the Western world either. But what needs to happen is a better recognition of what this does mean in terms of attitudes. I mean, there's a, there's a, I mean to get it a bit more raw, right? So if you're uh, big, fat, and stupid about a white guy, uh, you can go to Thailand and Philippines and somehow, you know, and very sadly, this girl. Uh, somehow and very sadly, oh, uh, women will be attracted to you, <laughs> you know, um, because it's seen as an economic thing, yeah. right? Because um, the guy is seen as wealthy as and, and, and a ticket out of my squalor, my squalor yeah. and my drudgery. Yeah. But where does that come from? You know, it comes from Hollywood. It comes from watching John Wayne movies. It comes from being told that uh, Western standards of affluence, lifestyles, beauty and wealth is the things you need to aspire to. So we're getting a bit deeper here into the complex things of what the post-colonial world looks like. But we need to be careful not to turn that into a reverse racism as well. No, you're right. And at least we have to be very careful to not fall into the same trap as we That's right. That's right. right. Um, so now we are given this opportunity, right? It's been what sixty f- plus years since sixty one, yeah, 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 since independence was obtained. Um, we've we've had in Malaysia a few notable leaders. We've also had our fair share of misses, you know, most notably the last prime minister. We haven't really grasped this opportunity to lead our people out. I mean, we don't have we don't have the leaders that. You know that have really taken the region by storm and say, "Hey, look, you know, um, we've had, yeah, you know, I mean, we've had Chairman Mao, we've had Mahathir, we've had Lee Kuan, you know, Harry Lee from Singapore, um, but those guys, I mean, they're kind of almost like flashes in the pan." I mean, uh, if you look at Malaysia in particular, uh, I think it'd be fair to say Malaysia's done pretty well, but it's also because Malaysia's very lucky. I often say Malaysia is the lucky country. We are very, very right? lucky. With small population. Resource rich. Resource rich. No natural disasters. Of no notes. volcanoes. Yeah. No typhoons. No tsunamis. No earthquakes. Right? You, you, eat, uh, you know, eat a fruit. You throw the seeds. Come back six months later and there's There'll monkeys. Be a tree. Yeah. There's a trees with monkeys on it. Yeah. Okay? So we're very lucky. That luck, that sort of inherit, that wealth we have, uh, has also been our Achilles heel. It's created what I call our complacency. So although we've had some, uh, you know, the initial stages of uh, leadership post-colonial era are always difficult, as you can see in Africa, etc. You know, after Mandela, there was difficulties. Zimbabwe, which I I know, and I, I, I you know Robert Mugabe was our hero in my student days. Incredible, but then, incredible, incredible, man, right? But then he couldn't do what was necessary to manage the economy. Et what I know about Mugabe is that he's a bit of a psycho. <laughs> well, 
Mugabe is cannot should not be described purely as in a, as a psycho. Mugabe is a complex uh, person, but and Mugabe he's, still in power. he's not in power. He's no, no longer no, no, in, power. He's in power. I think that's six eight months ago. But Mugabe was uh, the true a true revolutionary. That's why Nelson Mandela never criticized Mugabe in Africa. Mugabe is well respected still. Really, that's why even with him losing power, Mugabe has not been put to jail in jail or on trial. Okay, but okay, there's mismanagement. Okay. So coming back to Malaysia, we had I think some you know people who brought leaders who brought peace, stability, and had a, a, a certain uh, uh, vision of how to make that transition. And then I think we got rich too quick, right? We got rich too quick. So we started to essentially embrace a modernity bought on the cheap. And buying that on the cheap is trading on natural resources, yeah. right? So we don't really do anything that smart. And I say this with all humility to my Malaysian and respect. Uh, respect. Yeah. But we got rich on the cheap and, and we did it quite well, etc. But it created essentially a society, and I would argue this very strongly, which currently has no compass. We have no essentially great vision, uh, values, and principles, right? And I'll give you some examples. About two years ago, I was asked to speak at an anti-corruption conference. I was a dinner speaker. And I said, uh, most people were expecting me to perhaps speak about when 1MDB and all of that. And I refused to speak about that because I think enough has been said about that. But what I wanted to focus on was that is the collective complicity of all Malaysians in the corrosion of values. So when I said that, and I also think I, sp I did the dinner speech at the London School of Economics annual dinner, and I talked about the complicity of all Malaysians in the rot, without mentioning 1MDB. Several of the elites <laughs> at the audience then, of course, attacked me, but I was you know, expecting it. It's kind of red meat to <laughs> white sharks. Uh, attacked me saying, you don't know what you're talking about. I said, well, let's just take an example. Let's just go to middle class, upper middle class Bangsa. Let us take 10 minutes and just see who's parking everywhere illegally. Middle class Malaysians, lawyers, doctors, architects, accountants, middle class Malaysians. Not the poor Malaysians, right? Who's eating illegally off the curbs on restaurants that are breaking the law every day? middle-class Malaysians, who's employing labor that are essentially um, without permits, without uh, basically slave labor on the cheap, so that we can have our roti tolo and te tare for touring it. Because it's a reflection of the labor yeah. cost. That's why yeah. everything is cheap. Yeah. But it's a kind of mass slavery yeah. going on. Absolutely. I think the numbers are staggering the amount of foreign workers in Malaysia which essentially does not, uh, which has a huge economic impact in sort of depressing salaries of Malaysians and essentially making a whole class of young Malaysians essentially unwilling to work hard, do the hard work, etc. Who is doing all the illegal extensions to their homes? Go and look. It's all Malaysian. Where do they get the permits from? Who did they buy off? It's just paid off. It's yeah. just making it happen. Where, where is, which country has some of the greatest rates of default on payments of invoices? Malaysia. Really? People don't pay invoices. Well, pay I have yeah. friends here who are in business who gave up, the Malaysians who gave up businesses because nobody honored a contract and a deal. Uh, take me to court. 
you can't, you won't go to court, uh, all of those things. So I think whilst this is a very special country, and I want to stress that, I think on the whole, Malaysia is unique in its ability to have brought together uh, uh, majority Malays, Chinese, uh, Indians, and all these religions, etc. It's very unique for someone like me who's had the privilege of traveling around the world. That's why I treasure what we have here. But we need to be really careful not to squander this. Yeah. And it's very good to see that finally somehow on May the 9th, was it? Yeah, May uh, Malaysians, May Malaysians, May yeah. yeah, Malaysians woke up from a deep sleep. Now let's hope they don't go back to sleep, that they work hard. And in terms of the fundamentals I've mentioned, but let's also hope our politicians create uh, a clear idea and a vision of what we have. And that requires policy making of the highest order and insights beyond just slogans and short-term economic measures to essentially make everyone feel good. That is necessary, I understand the politics, but we need to have a bigger vision. And I don't see someone articulating that, you know? So when will we have clean toilets everywhere in KL? Well, the clean might, you know, that, I mean, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. It's not the vision is not clean toilets, but it's a symptom of a much deeper uh, malice in the society, one which is essentially middle class yeah. and rich. So you might have read that over the weekend the, tele the Telecom Malaysia Streamix broadband service was down. And the new I didn't read it, but I'm not surprised. Yeah, you're aware of it, right? <laughs> so it's a couple of days down, right? The communications minister, uh, Gobin Singh, a friend of mine from Penang, actually, I've known him for a long time. He's a very capable guy. He became the minister of communications. I met he, him the other day. Yeah, I gave him a guy. copy of my book. Good guy, yes. right? Very advanced, uh, very forward-looking guy. Yes. Um, called for various measures to be taken at Telecom Malaysia and uh, to be, you know, to be propagated in terms of transforming the business. And then uh, I think I saw yesterday or today a tweet that there's a there's a there's a that there's a group that have called for him to um, to, to retract his comments and uh, to for him to be taken off from his ministership because he's 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 he's, he's not doing right by a certain you know and this group is identified is it a group within the I, I can't remember okay and then a similar situation where um, you know Malaysia wants to sign up to the to ICED which is a International Convention of Human Rights, right? To, to, to ratify this convention. But but obviously, Malay, Malaysia feels that it, we cannot rat ratify this because um, it, would, would, it would go against the social contract in terms of protection, protecting the, the Bumiputra segment. Now, I'm not saying uh, I'm in favor of this, that, or the other. What I'm saying is that in order to have this very clear vision for the country, That's right. we are stopped and we are stultified by these issues which keep holding us back. And I think Mahathir is a smart guy. He, he knows what is good, I think, for the country. But to, to forward the nation, he's constantly being held back by these, by these issues. Yeah, um, I, I, and I, I think... I, I can't see a way forward. I think th this is uh, interesting. Uh, too many of us are looking to Dr. M to solve the nation's problems. Dare I say that sometimes I'm even a bit worried that some of the ministers who should be speaking up more clearly about their portfolios wait for the prime minister to say something. This is a bit worrying, although one understands many of them perhaps have never had ministerial roles, have always been in opposition. But, you know, why aren't they speaking up more? 
taking and relieving him of the burden of being the sole person. So I think then there's that. But then there's the other thing which I talk about in my book as well. But where the where the people in the public who are willing to speak up, there are very few of us who speak up. Um, well, some of us on the media do. Some of you do. I agree. But you know uh, that's your job. But where are the public intellectuals who speak? I'm no public intellectual, but I'm happy to come up here and speak. Right. There are very few speak because in Malaysia we have a culture of, my God, everything is sensitive, yeah. right? So you can't mention anything about race, you can't mention anything about religion, you can't mention about the incompetence of certain institutions, you can't mention the fact that uh, corruption is still rife in many of the so-called professional circles. But those taboos. Will uh, the inability to create an environment in which intellectuals, business leaders speak about it, uh, does not allow for the government to transform? Has any business leader since the election spoken up about corruption? Not a. No, you know better than I do. I'm just asking. But as far as I know, none. Has anyone talked about the need for meritocracy in the GLCs? No one. I mentioned this two years ago at the Kazana Mega Trends. There were all the GLC CEOs speaking about inclusion and this and that, etc. I said, how can the GLCs in Malaysia ever compete if there isn't meritocracy in the GLCs? And I asked them, do you believe there is meritocracy? And the answers I got were half of uh, three quarters of the panel didn't want to reply. Sensitive. And one or two who replied in 30 seconds basically said, "We don't have such a problem." So you know, hocus pocus, right? But all the others in the crowd <laughs> looked at me as though I had asked, I had asked, I'd asked the most uh, sinful question. Yeah. And some people even came up to me after the session and said, "You need to be careful about these." I said, "I don't see any policemen trying to arrest me." I didn't say What anything. What crime have you committed? Well, I just said, "Do you think we have meritocracy in the GRC?" The answer is no. No, we don't. We don't. So then, unless we have that conversation, we can't have the conversation that you know you're talking about. How to change these things? I suspect that the people who called out the minister were calling him out because he's Indian, and they were all uh, Malays. This is a sad state of affairs yeah. in Malaysia. Yeah. I'm probably maybe the first person who said this. I don't know, but the Indian minister speaking out about incompetence is seen as, bro, yeah. you got your job. Just be thankful. Exactly, you're not supposed right. to speak up about any of these things because if you do, you might be attacking us. Yeah. If we go down, if we maintain this, we cannot improve. We just cannot, but we need to have more Malaysians to speak up, not on racial grounds, on the grounds that to be better, we need to have the best people in the country to do this. I did a workshop about a year or two ago for one of Malaysia's largest companies, and they the workshop was run by foreigners. You know, one of those big business schools. Who asked me to run half a day because they can't ask the questions? You know, the Matsale is not going to ask the questions because he needs the retainer to come back. You're right? kidding! It's called the McKinsey BCG models of consulting. Yeah. So uh, they come in, they don't ask the question. So I was asked to engage in a session about leadership in the in the global context, 
My first question to those people is, do you believe that this room represents even the best in Malaysia? So code. Uh, how can you go global if you don't even hire the best people in the country based on meritocracy? Right? Of course, you could hear a pin, a drop, pin drop because I asked this question. My question was not about race. My question was, you want to be a global company? Get real. You need to employ the best people. And when you want to employ the best people, you have to essentially select them on the basis of meritocracy. And if they all turned out to be, you know, Buddhist monks, that's okay. So be it. Right. If they all turn out to be... Uh, Indian you know, transsexuals, so be it. So be it, right? But let's get real. But we cannot have the distortion that we have. And then people remaining silent. So we, and that is not to say we should not have social policies that seek to uplift the most uh, disenfranchised and impoverished in the country. And we all know that the, the, the largest population of people who've been disenfranchised in this country are the Malays. And we should do everything we can to uplift them. But we should have smart policies, not free meals. And we should help the poorest Indians. We should help the poorest Chinese. But let's face it, when we look at the the most disenfranchised population, Chinese, Indians, Malays, the largest segment will be Malays. And that's how we should define privileges, uh, not privileges, assistance, right? And that's a, that's a very different way of thinking about this. And, but we need politicians and business leaders to articulate it, make it more mainstream. The reason I'm speaking about this is to desensitize it, disarm everyone from thinking about this as politics. The best way to help the poorest people in this country, the majority of whom are Malays, is to have a system of meritocracy within some guided rules. Yeah. Because to not do that is a reverse form of apartheid. Yeah. It's to essentially say uh, Malay people cannot compete, which I don't believe. I believe uh, the Malay population is as smart as any of the other populations Absolutely. anywhere. Uh, but you don't get to compete by being hidden away from the realities Absolutely. of the world. But if you need a leg up, then we have to provide the leg up. But we don't give free meals. Well, and I lived in Southern Africa, and this was, uh, you know, all part of, uh, I, I lived in, I worked as a volunteer in Africa, and one of the biggest problems is this sort of charity and handing out. It doesn't help people. It doesn't help people. It makes them even less competitive. We know yes. that. I mean, 40 years of the social contract hasn't changed much. The situation of the, the largest swath of the population. Yeah. Um, and we continue to make the same mistakes. Yes. yes. So, um, but we don't have politicians who are willing to uh, address this. And we, it's been hijacked by people who bring in race, religion, etc. And we're not having an intelligent conversation about these things. It should be nightly spoken and debated on TV, etc., by intelligent people who are not involved in the politics of race. But sometimes I feel, I mean, Chan, you know, we we sit we're sitting here, you know, very near in Bangsa actually, yeah. um, and you've got your philosophies, and by and large, I agree with your philosophies. But um, there seems to be at least two classes of society in Malaysia. One. The, the more educated, the more urbane, the more um, well-traveled, like yourself. And then, um, and then the various layers in between. And then the vast majority who remain very um, cloistered and very narrow in their views. 
um, I don't know when the day will come when we have these kind of conversations on public broadcast. I mean, certainly what we're talking about now can't be had on public broadcast because it's just to, to be too but, sensitive. Right. But I, I, I think, you know, all societies uh, have many layers. Of layers. You go to the Absolutely. United sure, States. For sure, for right? sure, for sure. So, Same in America So we have well. no exception to that. But what does, what every society rec- is, uh, rec- uh, needs to go and progress is to have essentially platforms in which ideas that are essentially going to be beneficial to the country are essentially mainstreamed. And there's always a bit of a struggle uh, because some vested interests will not like it, etc. But we need to start uh, before we reach out and assume that people in the, in the vast masses don't understand our sensitive. Whenever I've gone to uh, rural areas in Malaysia and I've spoken to people of all races, religion, I think they're tired of the nonsense. Yeah, you think right? so? I, I absolutely believe so. And that is a good before thing. Before the elections, uh, I spoke to a lots of taxi drivers, mainly Malays, and I got an acute sense, and at that time, as you know, most of us never thought there would be a change, but I had a feeling, hmm, this time it's going to change. So we should not assume because that the rural populations who are mainly Malay uh, don't want to see a better Malaysia or don't understand the nuances. The only problem is they have not been told what the nuances look like. But to get those nuances, get that understanding, you need to have conversations that start in the metropole areas, the cities, etc. That's how it starts. We don't even have this conversation in elite places in Malaysia. You can go to a business conference and have this. Who's hiding? All the elites of all races. So they don't want to have this conversation. They, in many ways, are also beneficiaries of the current system because they have essentially (coughs) become the rent seekers within that. So the rent seeking mentality in Malaysia is essentially one that has knotted in people of all races. Right? They don't want to have the conversation. But then that, that the fear of political repercussions has infected, you know, if I can use the word, the so-called public intellectuals. Nobody wants to talk about this. Yeah. So we have very superficial things about, you know, let's all go to the market and be happy and eat some dodo and me go ring, etc. Who cares, right? Then we have superficial things of cultural uh, uh, coming together. And, you know, to be honest, Malaysia... At the, at the day-to-day level, does it very well, right? I, you know, I lived in the UK during the 80s, etc., and there was extreme racism, you know? You could walk down the street and be attacked by skinheads, etc. You felt the violence. You don't there, feel I, any of them. I, I was in the UK in the early 80s. It was yeah. terrible. Yeah, but you, today the UK is different. But you don't feel that. You don't feel the threat of any of that anywhere in Malaysia, which is wonderful. Now we need to work out, having got that, how can we essentially take the country up so that the rent-seeking behavior of vested interests who leverage economic power, religious things, etc., play a part in society, but do not intimidate or hold back the society. That's what we need to have. But we don't have enough actors. Yeah. And we just look for uh, Dr. M to change anything. But I don't see the ministers talking about it. Do you, do you, do you, do you see the new cabinet lineup with like enthusiasm? I mean, you've got people like you'll be in. Really smart girl, early 30s. Uh, she's in charge of the environment. Right? This is your area. 
you got people like Said Sadiq, who's in charge of, the, I think, youth and sports. He seems like quite a clued in guy, but even then, he had to bow to the principles of normalcy when it comes to human rights and ISIDs, our ratification. Then you got people like Gobin, who's a bit older, um, who's a bit more vocal, but again, he, he's still young compared to, say, Mother. You got people like, um, you know, Muslim Malik and education. I think, you know, the jury's out on him. Um, a few a few others, um, but they're quite young. Um, you know, people like Ong Kian Ming, quite good, um, etc. Et Tony Poa, etc. etc. Are you quite happy with the lineup? Well, you know, I I can't say I'm I'm f- uh, absolutely well versed with all the, yeah, yeah. the politics and the yeah. people, but I think one has to say that uh, one has to be very optimistic with uh, with the change. My view is we have the change. Now we have to, to support happen, the yeah. government, right? Uh, I've written several pieces about this, that one of the dangers of mature democracies is that there's a charade of democracy that we all vote, and the next day we try and take down the government, uh, which is, you know, you can see in Europe, you see in the USA, yeah. etc., so that nothing gets done. In a country like ours, which is, a, which is in my view, still as a middle... I mean, some people say it's middle income, but most of the country is a developing nation, in yeah. my view. So yeah. let's not pretend, yeah. right? And particularly having gone through what we have, which looks like uh, the biggest Ponzi scheme the world has ever seen, right? Uh, it is really important now for us in society, all of us, to help build the institutions of the state. And that requires a much more committed participation in public life and public policy. That doesn't mean we all need to write public policy, but just criticizing the government is not necessarily a very productive thing. So I see, you know, the little role I can play is to try and support. So you mentioned several ministers. It's clearly in the area of environment, natural resources, and there are two ministries. One, uh, the minister that you mentioned that takes care of the environment, and, and I've met her twice now, and the other minister for natural resources. Uh, I think they're all trying to do their best. My my view is that there is that needs to be a bit more of an overarching insight into how policy needs to be essentially stitched together. In fact, I wrote a small piece uh, proposal to the Institutional Reform Committee, to which I got no reply. <laughs> so you know, you should not invite if you don't have a secretariat to even reply. But maybe they are learning. Yeah. But you know, but. Uh, but it's essentially to look at how, at the highest level, you transform the company, the country by essentially looking at institutions beyond how do we catch the corrupt, right? So, you know, much of the institutional reform at the moment is to sort of be, make sure that there's no corruption, make sure that the, 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 the Malaysian Anti-Corruption Commission, Commission is, yeah. is strong and they're chasing people. All of that is very good. But you have to have a much larger view of what is lending to this sort of behavior. And in my piece, I said it was essentially the rent-seeking behavior of elites in a country where essentially the resource base is so rich that essentially rent-seeking starts by having free access, free discounted uh, access and exploiting resources through... Uh, by usurping the various institutions which are weak. So this from plantations, 
to access to minerals right through to land development. So if you look at what's happening in our hill resorts, go and check. I would guarantee you 70 to 80% don't have all the permits. Yeah. So I have a, I have a place in, uh, in what I thought was a properly managed uh, homestead area in, in, Jalibu, in yeah. uh, outside in Kuala Pila area. And I was the first person there uh, more than 15 years ago. Since then, various people have come. All middle class, no, not middle class, upper middle class Malaysians, everyone breaking the law. Everyone building businesses where there's no permits, complain to the uh, authorities, no one cares. No response. Everyone, and when they do come, they're bought off. So it comes back to my point about the complicity. Uh, I don't want to name names, but you know, I've, I filed the, we've, people of us who are concerned, we have filed the complaints. I have to say the bit of the good news is last month, since the new government came in, um, the authorities have visited. Oh, okay. They have visited. But the danger is they have visited, but they'll succumb to essentially the pressure to develop and therefore put in a bit of superficial uh, laws in place, which is better than none but allow development, rather than taking the view that I said we should take, some things cannot be done. That is how you mature as uh, an economy. There are some no-go areas. Certain things should be protected. Not everything is for sale. Because you put everything up for sale, you start to disenfranchise the people who, who essentially benefit from what we call, you know, the abundance, the, the, the services of larger natural systems, etc. But that's a great, that's a small example of no rule of law. And that's not, you know, in some forest in Pahang. That's like 30 minutes from Saramban, an hour and 10 minutes from here. And that's the weakness we have. River water being taken by people who, should, who, have no, who have no right to river water. Garbage being thrown anywhere. And people running chalets and businesses in areas they shouldn't have. Look what happened to Cameron Highlands. Look at what's happened to all our, our areas. Cameron Highlands is a disgrace. It's a disaster. But 30 years or 40 years of essentially complete neglect and mismanagement. This is nothing to do with economic development. This What's is your idea of wealth? Pillaging. What's your idea of wealth? How how does a country get rich nowadays? You know, in in terms of um, uh, in terms of how we define wealth, how we define development, how we define progress as a country. How do well, you think we should? Well, I, I think in the twenty first century we have to define uh, redefine what I call prosperity and the path to prosperity. The, the, pros the path to prosperity as defined through the post-Second World War free market American dream was essentially everyone can have everything. And essentially then economics became something about free markets, trade everything, and somehow trickled on, it trickled down economics as defined by the World Bank and supported by the IMF will somehow resolve our issues and somehow it will help become middle class, drive cars and everything will be okay. That's the same model being pursued by Malaysia now, but then I read that the middle class in America is evaporating. Yes. There's a, something like a million and a half Americans living in RVs in their cars because they can't afford to buy a home. Yeah. There's something like 45 million Americans who are on food stamps yeah. and uh, in queues getting their food from food kitchens on a daily basis. Yeah. What happened to the richest and country the, uh, in the world? And th that's essentially globalization. Right. right. And because of that... The subject of one of my books here, globalization. Yeah. 
And that is essentially why those people, essentially angry white Americans and a few others, brought in Donald Trump. Because Donald Trump said, I will fight globalization and I'll make America first. So globalization at many levels was okay so long the benefits of globalization, which for 50, 60 years, disproportionately went to the Western world. Then about 25, 30 years ago, more importantly in the last 20 years, the rest of the world began to rise, <coughs> take advantage of globalization, of course with a high price too, which comes with carbon, uh, uh, carbon emissions, etc. So, so long as the, uh, the rules of the old order for globalization disproportionately benefited the West, it was okay. Until they started to feel Until the pain. Until it started feeling the pain. When the jobs went to China, when everything started to change, the others came up. That's the real truth behind why the, the yeah. Brexit. Uh, it's also, you know, uh, Donald Trump is also Brexit. So Brexit for me is essentially 400 years of empire coming to end, globalization kicking in with disproportionate benefits. The benefits were not for them only. It's fairer. On the other side of the equation, of course, is that globalization has huge consequences, which we all talk about. And this is what I talk about in my first book. If um, 6 billion Asians by 2050 uh, adopt and prosper around the current rules of globalization, then game over. Charita base. End. Kaput. In terms right. of the, the, the world's the world, limited the resources. World's, that's scientific, you know. Yeah. As you know, and I don't want to... Um, uh, uh, name dropped too much but I'm a member of the Club of Rome and the 50th anniversary was last month and among the serious people in the world there's a completely different discussion from what's taking place on Bloomberg if you see what I mean and uh, these people are not trying to sell you anything they are putting down the facts so when you listen to that then you understand that there's a, def that there's a whole different trajectory that we are now uh, embarking on, which therefore requires us to redefine wealth and prosperity. So for me, the wealth and prosperity discussion needs a completely different lens through which. That discussion will not take place and not be defined through Western institutions, not the best or any, because it's ideologically so difficult for a Western audience or a Western institutions to discuss it because fundamentally it comes down to this very crudely. Six, seven billion people in the developing world from Africa to Asia cannot live like the lifestyles that have been taken for granted in the West. In the West, there's a desire to safeguard those, that lifestyle, understandably so. Those who have find it very difficult to give up. To give it up, yeah. Of course, that's only human. The problem is we're trying to have that, and it's not possible. Therefore, my point is we need to understand what we have a completely different political narrative around what we can do to safeguard the collective improvement rather than believe in this mumbo-jumbo that everyone can aspire to be rich, the pie will be big enough, and everyone can land on the same page, and you can have your swimming pool and barbecue pit. Uh, this is not possible. So the political leadership needs to think about this very differently, 
and decide, therefore, what does what I call moderate prosperity look like? And in that context of resource constraints, for me, moderate prosperity is a political philosophy that essentially is underpinned by how can the majority have access to five basic things? The, the, they start with safe and secure food supply. This is a, a very complex undertaking in the world we live in. Second, water and sanitation, which people do not understand the complexities of. But, you know, funnily enough, this week, because of last week, because Bill Gates started to talk about shit, uh, the Western media covered it. Incredible. I've been talking about shit for 10 years. <laughs> that if you don't deal with the shit, yeah. you don't develop. Exactly. Right? So, you know, just to, because we're in Malaysia, you'll be surprised. I would, uh, I would, I would argue that a good 80% of all the schools in KL do not have proper sanitation. I know I go to so my someone should go and do an audit. I go to my son's school, my kid's school in in KL. Um, I'm not going to say which one because it will out them, but the toilets reek. It's a complete a, a disgrace. A lot of kids don't go to the toilet, and especially young girls. It's a complete disgrace. Yeah, and these are schools. All those headmasters should be fired, right? So we should do a toilet audit on all the headmasters. I mean, don't even talk about the schools. Talk about the public toilets. It's a complete disgrace. We want tourists to come to Malaysia. We want 30 million people to come to Malaysia I don't this care year. about the tourists. I'm I don't care about the tourists. I, I, I care about the it's local Malaysians. But you know what I'm saying. Right? So, and so it's a complete disgrace. It's a disgrace. So food, water supply, and sanitation. Then there's the issue of just a basic shelter. Fortunately, in Malaysia, uh, a lot of that is taken care of. But if you look at India, China, and, and India, Indonesia, housing is going to be the biggest challenge. The and biggest house, challenge by far. Yeah. And that would be probably the materials to bear, build the basic homes would essentially churn the world in terms of material needs. But the idea that somehow people will have homes because Walmart invests, you will go and work at the supermarket, save a few pennies and get a mortgage, is completely nonsense. So you have to have a very different model of looking at how to fulfill the basic rights of a shelter, which is a start for security and removing the drudgery of life. You don't have to own the house. You don't exactly. have to buy so the house. Exactly. So all kinds of different models, and it should not be about letting people imagine that they can live in two thousand square foot, have a garden, and all of that. Those things are impossible for the majority. So this comes back to my view. But what is that moderate prosperity? And then there is basic energy levels, right? Most people in this part of the world do not have the energy le consumption levels uh, required to live uh, live their basic lives. And I'm not talking about Malaysians, where we squander our energy, basically, a lot of us. So then there is public health. So those are the moderate prosperity, and that's what the role of the state is in fulfilling. Most politicians might agree with it, but then they subscribe to the World Bank model, which is essentially open your doors to foreign investment, this da-da-da-da-da, and somehow, if all the FDI comes in, uh, you will all be uh, rich and wealthy and driving cars and shopping in malls, and everybody will be okay. This is not possible. That's what I'm trying to say. So then we have to decide, how are we going to essentially provide people with, the, with, with those basics, and at the same time, not fall into the trap of believing that the future to prosperity is more urban nightmares, create more jobs in uh, urban cities, try to manage them, use slogans like smart cities, and somehow believe that, voila, we'll have uh, a viable society. 
I think this needs a completely different uh, a debate, etc. And Malaysia has its challenges, though not as extreme and profound as pay the large countries like Indonesia, etc. So you've just outlined the same ca- uh, use case for much of the de- developing Asia, because every single country is perceiving the World Bank model, with the exception of, say, Bhutan, for example, right? Um, but everybody else is pretty much chasing the same FDI, chasing chasing the same foreign multinational dollar, chasing those dreams of having a basically a mortgage, a house and two cars, and a little garden in the back. Um, even the the, the the governments in, in, in recent times is, is basically sponsoring this idea for peer-to-peer lending so that you can you can own your own home, which I think is is, is on the verge of, of ridiculous because if you can't afford to buy a home in the first place, then don't. But look at debt in Malaysia, household debt. It's, it's huge. It's huge. It's, it's huge. huge. Yeah. So so why why own homes? Yeah. Right? Why can't we have a kind of Felder scheme for homes? Why can't we have a different way of thinking about what is a home? And very importantly, as you said, you know, uh, I'm not saying FDI is bad, right? But, you know, this idea of FDI, and what is foreign anyway? The F in <laughs> FDI. What, what is foreign? So, uh, so we need investments. Those investments can come locally too. We have sovereign wealth funds. Yeah. We have many things, but we- Our sovereign wealth funds are investing abroad. And some of that's okay, but you know, if you and I think uh, Dr. M has called into question some of that, but uh, but if you treat everything through a PE model, then it's a very different private equity, way, private equity model. Then everything is different. So uh, we have to really think through what the future looks like. But you have to have a very clear appreciation of what are the constraints of the next fifty years. I don't think I don't we, think we have a real handle we, on we, the constraints. Yeah, we don't understand this, and therefore we think take every uh, young person, put them to a university degree, and do you, because do you, they're not qualified, let's lower the standard, and then somehow they'll get jobs, and they'll all be entrepreneurs. And I've, just, and been, I've just been telling all these young people from ASEAN who've all been drinking that same thing, and they talk about buzzwords, yeah. entrepreneurs. I say entrepreneurship is not for everyone, and my God, let's not let's hope not everyone is an entrepreneur. Yeah. And you got all these schemes about being an entrepreneur. These are lies. Yeah. Just be hardworking. Person. What do you think about education? What do you think about tertiary schooling? What do you think about university degrees? What do you think of the fact that every kid with half a brain cell is aiming to go to Harvard, Yale, Oxford, Cambridge? Um, INSEAD, what have you. What do you think about that? I think in terms of the schools you mentioned, the sort of iconic so-called brands, uh, that's Stanford, really a, that's Walton. really a middle-class obsession. Right? It is. But that's a brainwash. So it's not everyone, uh, but it is a middle-class obsession, and, and hopefully one day uh, we'll get to a point that people we'll understand that why don't we build some our own situation Okay, here. so forget about but, those names, yeah, Chandran. Right. What about the fact that people are chasing the I think the problem in Malaysia is... Uh, we have. I, I heard a number, something like we have 300 universities in a country this size. Most of them are not worth uh, anything. Most of them are, are, are rooms in shop lots. And you have to ask, who the hell permitted this? Yeah, allowed then, these institutions. Uh, so who allowed this, right? So, but these were allowed because they were seen purely as business ventures rather than as universities. And I would argue even some of the private so-called universities in Malaysia, uh, I will not name any of standing, um, second class, probably third class at best, right? So 
if you want to do this, you have to have high standards. You have to have high standards. Education is essentially multi-tiered, and I'm not an educational specialist, but I will start with saying the best people should be teaching in our primary schools. Not universities, primary schools. Primary schools. Because that's when the learning really starts. That's when it starts. And, and moving away from the Malay-English thing, which is a perennial problem, but just simply said, you know, in the world we live in at the moment, if you can't speak English, you lose. I'm sorry. That's if the base case. The basic, basic case. Uh, if you want to promote science and technology, well, it's not written in Malay. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. So if you want to do research, you want to go and look for the best research papers, etc., you have to be in English. So let's not put the kids, the young people, and particularly the young Malay kids, I'll be very clear about this, at a disadvantage by not giving them access to English and demanding of them at an early stage and exposing them to that because they can compete with any, but they will not be able to compete and become research scientists, etc., if they don't have well, the real tragedy English. is that a lot of our educationists and policy makers don't realize that not being able to speak English is like being in prison. They're locked out of this whole universe. Absolutely. And they don't realize it. They don't realize it. And they're that. propagating the fact yeah. that... But our politicians and all of us have kept quiet because we worry that if you challenge that, somehow you're challenging something to do with Malay. And, and this is just the most silly, naive way. No one is saying that you should not speak Malay, speak the best Malay, but my God, if you can't speak English right fluently, you will not be able to access the best information. So what are Chinese kids doing? They're all learning English. I China Chinese, not necessarily Malaysian Chinese. Yeah. Malaysian Chinese are still going to Chinese school. Yes. And they are getting locked out of the system as well because yes. they come out. But at least they learn maths. Sorry? Right, they learn maths. <laughs> right, okay, so that's half the problem. <laughs> that, 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 that's half at the least they get that right. Yeah. So, but if you don't go to a good school, you don't have the maths, you don't have the English, you are at a huge disadvantage. I, I sometimes go and speak at Ch in universities in China, some of the top ones. Yeah, I meet Chinese kids, uh, university uh, undergraduates, uh, who've never been out of China. Never. You should see their spoken English. Good, right. great, excellent, fantastic. Right, so it can because they understand. Can they speak Chinese? Of course. Do of they know they Chinese can. history? Of course. But they also know it's not a fair world. They know that if they want to be at the top, they need both languages. We need to get real in this country, right? So we give everyone understanding. Hey, there's a game out there. It's a big world. Uh, you need to be bilingual, or you lose. And if you, want, if you want kids to lose in Malaysia, keep on with the current system. But if you want to change it, radical. No tinkering. And start with the primary schools. And I have made this proposal before that, uh, you know, our primary schools, and, uh, you know, and without any disrespect, uh, are not staffed by the best and brightest. No, I can, Sorry I can, to I say can this. attest to that. And know, people I've will not like this, but we essentially have a scheme by which those who don't go to higher education, essentially going to the colleges, teaching colleges, and they've all served the country very well, but they're not the best and brightest. So how do we square what you're saying in terms of wanting to be competitive with the rest of the world, but not again competing for the same FDI, so to speak, with the rest of the world? Is there like a, is there like a, a, a development model that Malaysia can pursue where it doesn't disenfranchise a large swath of the, of the population, 
but we can all get access to those five rights and privileges that you mentioned. Is, yes. that, is that like an elegant kind of like middle, middle well, solution? I, as I said, you know, let's not, uh, let's not, uh, 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 I'm not in any way suggesting we, we come, become isolationists uh, I mean, we can't be isolationist. No, you cannot. And it's good to be exposed to the world. So I'm not saying that FDI uh, is a bad thing. But the, the idea that FDI uh, and reliance on that will somehow transform the economy and create the growth is naive. So I'm saying we have to bring some FDI, but you have to much bigger understanding of how we are essentially going to provide the type of prosperity that safeguards the basic, what I call the rights to life. But with education, we don't need everyone to be a software engineer. You know, we don't need more apps. We need people who understand many different things. For instance, even in the Klang Valley today, um, Try and go and find a good plumbing shop that is run by professionals. You can't find. Zero. Zero, right? Zero. So what do you find? Illegal workers, some Bangladeshi guy, he used to sell roti and now he's doing a bit of plumbing on the side. All of that mumbo jumbo, <laughs> right? <laughs> so why isn't plumbing a big occupation? It should that, be. Yeah. In, in Australia. But because because in we've pretended that all our kids can be geniuses and become science and technology graduates. And then, not only that, we lower the mark. They're not even, uh, they don't have the aptitude. That doesn't make them stupid. You know, if you don't have the aptitude, you can do some other things. Maybe you're just good with your hands. Absolutely. And uh, what about, you know, uh, builders? We don't have builders. Look at the German system. Look at the right? houses and houses of parliament falling apart and leaking. Well, not just houses of parliament. Look everywhere. We don't have a maintenance culture. What about maintenance engineers? We don't have that. So, but go to Germany, right? Everybody's a DIY guy. Uh, hi, no, go and hire a plumber. and It'll cost you as much as going to see the doctor. Yeah. Right? Because that is seen as a very professional... Try getting electricians in Malaysia. No, you got to get some Indo guy and some Bangla guy, uh, and they're crawling over their roo your roof. They don't know what they're <laughs> doing. And if you're lucky, you get some old Chinese guy who still knows what he's doing, right? So my conundrum is that um, I've got kids, right? And um, in about five, ten years' time, five, eight, seven or eight years' time, I've got to play an instrumental part in um, my advice to them as to yeah. what to do with their lives, right? I mean, the Asian Chinese side of me says, bloody hell, go and, you know, study something which you can then get a job with and, sure. and get a salary good enough so you can leave the house and I can have my peace and quiet. Yes. Um, equally, um, we, we, we're still stuck in this paradigm where accountants, lawyers, account, uh, engineers and doctors still cut master with, with the working world. Yes. So, so how, how would you, how should we redefine what, makes um, a good job, uh, a, a fulfilling life, a, a good future for our children, progress, wealth, essentially. Well, you know, uh, let's go back to being a doctor, right? The oath that doctors take, essentially. The Hippocratic oath. Yeah, it's about... It's riddled with hypocrisy. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's about saving lives, right? So there's nothing wrong in being a doctor. Um, so I think, you know, your kids, if they... If they want, you know, want to be a doctor, there's no harm in being a doctor. Um, and then there's being doctors and being doctors. So I have a very good friend of mine um, who is actually a banker. And 
he thought his son should go and study finance, etc. But I think the the home environment, the the kid got interested in the developing world, and the kid is uh, very smart. Fortunately, parents wealthy, uh, but smart kid, and went to the best medical schools, but was not interested in essentially medicine that was essentially treating the ills of the the rich and famous or the wealthy, the rich people's disease. He was very interested in essentially public health from the point of view of the developing world. So he then specialized in essentially tropical diseases and then went to Africa to essentially do a fair amount of research and internship. Fantastic. So you can do many things. Fantastic. And you don't need to go to Africa. Uh, you know, Southeast Asia has so many needs in terms of uh, what medicine can do. So I think all of these professions have value. The question is, we then have to decide whether you want to go and work for a private hospital uh, and uh, rip off uh, people, or you want to go and have a bit more of a purpose. And I think at one level, uh, being a doctor is, um, you know, there is purpose. But I would argue that so much of the medical, you know, the, the sort of medical sector has essentially become a money-making industry, and we all know that. So, but there's so much need for doctors to essentially do the basics and save lives, etc. So, you could, same thing with law. I mean, you could be a lawyer, and you can go and work in some boring, dead-end corporate law, uh, you know. And make shit loads of money. And you can do that. And uh, do you know prepare IPO documents, or you could go and be a lawyer that protects essentially the working rights of domestic workers, etc. Uh, you might not live up on the you know in Kenny Hills, but you know you still have a very good job doing something of great value. It depends on your aspirations as well. I think uh, many of uh, many parents these days, particularly those who are privileged and have access to essentially channeling their kids to the, the directions um, they want, take the route of Ivy League, come back, work for Goldman Sachs, and uh, then let's do a bit of charity and social work with our friends over the weekend. Uh, I think that you, we have to decide. But I, I don't, I mean, that's a, a bit of a sideline conversation. The, the bigger macro conversation is what does education do for the majority of people in a country like Malaysia that makes them, you know, um, engaging citizens that can contribute in a useful way to the challenges that take place, that, that, that the challenges that uh, the country has. You know, earlier you were talking about how we're so fixated on producing doctors and lawyers and accountants. Um, but we don't have um, people who can professionally fix your plumbing system. Yes. We don't have a guy, any, any, anybody that can professionally fix your electrical system. Yeah. We've got people running riot in that regard. And I mean, we can see, I mean, that there are real dangerous outcomes and manifestations of that particular lack of professionalism. I mean, houses catch fire all the time. Houses of parliament start leaking in the middle of a tropical downpour. It's ridiculous. Um I, I don't know. I, I get what you hear. I, I get what you say. Uh, in, the, in the UK, you call a plumber, he's going to cost you £150. The same thing in, in Australia. You call someone to come and beat your, you know, to come and sort out your, your garden, it's going to cost you a lot of money. I don't know when we're going to get there because the whole Asian culture of saying, you know, let's do something, let's, let's force, for, put our children into a, a, into, a, into a job which is 
which is some um, which has some which has some cachet, which people respect. You don't want them to get down and dirty. I don't know, man. You know. No, that's um, that's that's uh, what you're describing is the dilemma of is the, is the privileged perennial? middle classes, and that's okay. Right, that's okay. That's okay. But it's a, real, you it's a real dilemma nonetheless. It's a real dilemma, and good for the middle class that they have this dilemma. I ain't worried about that. Yeah. Now, what we need <laughs> to talk about is a country. Yeah. And the plumber issue is the country's opportunity. The, the idea that all these kids from Sungapatani, Johor Bahru, or you know, Kuala Tungano must somehow all be force-fed into this university system, yeah. most of which are third class, come out with a degree and then aspire to be all these d different professional classes is it's a distortion of the reality. The other problem with not having that is of course our great this 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 uh, this view that all of these kids and particularly you know because of our uh, policies in the country the majority of these Malay kids should all go to university somehow get these things and then they somehow they can't make it because they don't have the proper basic education then we lower the marks except this is all un unnecessary and not good some of them might be the best plumber in the world it could be the best plumber in Malaysia so what we need to do is you have to have a country in which the citizens of the country essentially are able to essentially fill all tiers of the economic ladder in terms of various skills and jobs. That's what you need. Now, if you are Singapore, maybe you have a small population in which there you need to fill certain gaps with the construction, etc., industry. But in Malaysia, we don't need that. We have a growing population who needs jobs. We have an immigration policy that is completely broken. I think there's something, depending on estimates, something like five million or six million immigrants in the country. Official of, and unofficial. Uh, you know, who knows what is official and unofficial, of which maybe four or five million are illegal, right? Why is that? How did that happen? I mean, this is catastrophic in terms of mismanagement. This is not to say we shouldn't have immigrants. I, I'm not saying chuck all of them out, etc. But this is a complete abuse of essentially people. Most Malaysians will not know that most of these people are maltreated. Uh, some of it verges yeah. on essentially slavery. Yeah. I've seen this, right? But we are complacent. Now, why the previous government, for whatever reasons, never took a hard line on this? I hope this government will, because to protect well, the human rights. Well, worker permits are paid for by their clients, and each permit costs we all know, of we all know we all know the scam that was yeah. basically the immigration system yeah. i mean you know you go to singapore hong kong a work permit for uh, uh for a domestic helper is essentially the employer doesn't have to turn up uh the fill out the forms you pay the fee it's three hours it's done in malaysia it's a black hole yeah okay um, thousands and thousands of ringgit and then it's renewable and every agents and people and it's all money is flowing through the immigration system uh the vast majority of the immigration officers are on the take uh, you go to the putrajaya immigration center and i'm i'm calling this out um uh the the stalls are uh, are never uh, open on time people turn up with their breakfasts at whatever time are you just supposed to stand there and wait because yeah. apparently uh 
they're doing you a favor. Monumental waste of time. A waste of time. So it's it's a huge economic uh, impact of the country. But coming back to the point, um, the 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 import of all of this labor has huge economic effects on the country, in terms of suppressing essentially wages for Malaysians, and essentially also excluding Malay Malaysians from the the work stream in terms of the tough jobs, right? And many Malaysians, particularly from the rural areas and the poorer societies, have essentially failed. It's they don't do tough work. They don't work anymore in those things. You know, building sites, not us. Yeah. Uh, we don't do those things. The, the whole triple D thing, dirty, dangerous, and and. Yeah, but they but at the same time, wages in Malaysia are very low. Yeah, but the thing is, the irony is that. Um, I don't know whether this is right to say or not, but in kind of like a, a fundamentally driven society, um, you got to start. You got to pay your dues, right? I mean, even right. in professional circles, you got your, you got to learn the hard way, pay your, go through the ropes, and uh, eventually you come to a point where you got to monetize all your experience. You don't come in at the deep end and straight away get the seven-figure salary. You can't do that. That's not how it works. It doesn't work, but and so there's the middle class dilemma as well in middle class families where there is an entitlement culture, and I I know this from personal experience, where you know you go to university, you know you've been living with your parents till you're about twenty five, uh, you've had butler service called the maid since you were like one years old, you don't know how to do anything, then you come out and you expect to get five thousand uh, ringgit salary. Uh, you're worth about one thousand, yeah. right? Yeah. You can't even speak and have a conversation with anybody. All you can do is WhatsApp, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so there is that problem, uh, which is essentially entitlement. I mean, there was a survey done, I think, about a few months ago. Malaysia has the, I think, the third largest, uh, ranked third, third in the world in terms of adults, graduates staying at home with parents. Uh, because the butler service is pretty good, yeah. okay? <laughs> and they don't, laundry, to, they don't have to pay the rent, car, they don't have yeah. to pay. The second point is the wages are so low in Malaysia. They can't afford to come they out. They can't afford to come out and have the privileges that they had. So it's a whole uh, you know, trickle-down effect across the economy. That's the middle-class problem. Then you have essentially the, the sort of working-class problem, which is not equipped to do any job, right? Because they were told they could be uh, uh, some software engineer, and then they went. And there are hundreds of these people coming out. They're not enough jobs. And many of them are not good enough to go and enter the private sector. We've heard about this because they don't have the skills. They can't read the, the manual written in English, right? So there's so many problems. And so they're all then going back, not having productive jobs. And instead, they could be doing all those very respectable jobs in terms of not needing degrees, and yet I think I think because I've interacted with you quite a lot of times already, Chandran, you you see you're still very optimistic about the future, despite all the problems that our country you have is facing. to be. <laughs> <laughs> if you're not otherwise, you know, you go and commit harakiri, but you have to be. Yeah, but I mean, there's a lot of stuff to be optimistic about. But it's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. I mean, uh, so I see it as you know, call it out, and then let's, let's be open get about it, and transparent. Uh, yeah. The, and I'm optimistic because I think by calling it out, let's hope people understand. The, uh, I often say that optimism should not be based on denial, right? 
So denial is not the basis for optimism. Some people sometimes, actually you call me up to call me pessimism on the global stage on certain things. I say I'm not a pessimist and I'm an optimist, but, my op- but I'm not going to be optimist, uh, op- uh, an optimist by hiding my head in the sand. So in Malaysia, we need to call this out. We need to then say, where are the jobs? And all the discussions we have are, you know, let's look at just food supply in Malaysia. One of the biggest challenges going that we've been faced with, not just in Malaysia, is food supply. Food supply. And food is not about more supermarkets, right? That's not where the food comes from. So food will be, uh, the growing of food would be a huge growth area. But we have made food and farming, you know, the poor, uneducated peasant's job. It's not yeah. so. Yeah. So imagine hundreds of thousands of uh, young people essentially educated, not through university, in essentially food production. You don't need a degree in that, right? So, but instead we think food is agriculture, go to the university. No, no, no. Then we need to have all the infrastructure that allows food supply to essentially be embedded into the economy in a way that is not underpriced and pays for proper jobs. So you got the whole thing, you know, a, 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 a more revolutionary way of thinking about this rather than slogans that some of the, you know, at least the previous government used to say, uh, just throwing out slogans about entrepreneurship, yeah. etc. No, funny you should say that, because, like, I remember some years ago, I was talking to what was, uh, at the time, a young intern. He's in cryptocurrencies now. And that's, of course, a discussion for another day. But <laughs> smart guy, Malay boy, early, early mid-20s, come from a very good university, very smart guy, right? Yeah. And I said to him, he was looking to me for advice, heaven forbid, on investment so I said look I mean you can do a lot worse than buy a piece of land uh, because you're a Malay guy um, you've got access to fantastic exactly. plots all around the country go ahead and get your one two acres two three acres um, go ahead and plant your crops go ahead and plant your trees and ensure your food security in the future because um, it'll be one of the big issues in the future and and you know what he said to me he said you know we spend an entire generation or two trying to get out of the jungle and here you are telling me I should go back and he, he wasn't dismissive of the idea he just found it incredulous that I could be I should be recommending something like this back to him for him to return so in his mind he thought about this as returning to the jungle but actually what it's you just not. said it's not absolutely not it's not absolutely not and, and the investments then go into uh, uh, the the logistics supply so that farm produce essentially can reach essentially consumers yeah. in a more direct way then it's in irrigation. It's using the best technology now to essentially improve productivity, etc. Then it's building clinics, etc. But let's clinics, etc. But let me just give you one example of jobs. And let's not talk about the the rich kid that you knew who went to a good school. No, he's not a rich kid. Though. But he's okay, like, well, yeah, he, uh, went to a good school. No, no, he. I think this fellow scholarship guy, right? Okay, scholarship um, guy. Poor, poor so family. The, yeah, so but scholarship really guys well. are very difficult as well because they did feel, hey, I got the scholarship, yeah. getting out of the jungle. Yeah. Okay? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. So let's not talk about scholarship, because let's just talk about, you know, the the secondary school dropout, etc. I mean, look at, you know, I, I won't go into all the details, but look at Felder, right? So much land. You think it's palm oil for the uh, for the next hundred years? No. Can't be. Shouldn't be. It can't be. be. Look at the age of the trees. Look, is that is that is that land bank, that asset, and someone told me they might be one of the largest landowners in the world, Yeah. right? 
Is that the future, or is that something else? Can't be. Right. Can't right. be. Right. How do you look? How would you transform that over the next twenty years? That essentially the next generation becomes producers of a different, a different, um, a, a different output from that land, and it's not you know palm oil, jungle, snakes, and iguanas. You see what I mean, right? <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> and, and flying foxes. It's a whole different setup that gives hundreds of thousands of jobs, gives them equity in the land, creates a whole range of different agricultural produce that not only but first serves the local population yeah. and is part and parcel of the new world, right? How does that look like? So that's we need all this different. Exciting. Yeah, that's very exciting, and it's not. It's not. You know, I I live in this dark, dingy place with palm oil trees. There's no sunlight, and man, we shut all the doors in, at six p.m. because the mosquitoes and iguanas want to come in. It's a very different way of looking at it, and so it's a complete different way of looking at how the nodules of development take place in the country. That is the kind of ideas that we need, and then equipping these people with all the know-how and technology. They don't need to have a university degree force-fed. Absolutely. On that. Okay. Absolutely. They don't need that. Absolutely. I mean, people who manage irrigation systems today with technology, it's a whole no, no, uh, uh, whole range of skills. But everyone wants to go and it's, when it's called technology, everyone wants to be the the digital sifu. Yeah. Right sitting in an air-conditioned office, devising another, uh, coming up with another app. Rather than just, someone has to grow something, make something, break something. That's the jobs that, you know, a lot of these next generation could be, and deploying the technology in the way. They are the applicators, right? They apply the technology to something productive that they produce and own, right? not thinking they all need to be some Silicon Valley geek. We don't need any more of those. So, so it's a way of thinking about things. I can talk about fisheries, a lot of other stuff where we can manage things very differently from the point of view of creating jobs, both urban and rural. So I know you write columns. I think you're going to, you know, I think you'll be writing some an op-ed for the New York Times when you go home later on. You've got a lot of um, placements in established Western um, publications. Um, and I know you, you pretty much propagate the same message. You, 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 you're an advocate for these kind of like statements. And I, um, I mean, my question to you, I, I think because we've, we've nearly run out of time, but um, have you gotten any traction in the West for these points of view? And, and, and you know, in, in terms of the reach and the heft and the distribution of these publications, have you managed to shape opinion in those parts of the world? Well, you know, one should not uh, overextend, uh, overestimate one's influence. But I like yeah. to think yeah. uh, that some of the much of the feedback I get and the invitations I get uh, that there is traction. Uh, I am, uh, and again, not to overstate it, I am a very different voice. Yeah. Because as we said, not many Asians speak up. But the danger is then not to be seen as the angry brown guy. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so you have to substantiate it with topics, analysis, etc. And my second book is that. And the, the, currently the reaction to that has been very positive. Uh, again, you know, when I presented a talk about my second book about the state. The sustainable state. At the, at the Club of Rome meeting. Um, it shocked a lot of people, but very few people could disagree with the thesis, the argument. But it shocked very many people who acknowledged that they're not used to this narrative. Right. But to answer your question more fully, 
Of course, on one hand, you know, uh, I speak in international forums, call it Western Water. But my main audience, I hope, will be the people in this part of the world. And that's why the book is written in a way for Malaysians, for Indonesians, for Chinese. For us and ASEAN. We, yeah, we need a ASEAN. new model. And I'm very pleased that at the moment uh, there is a very serious interest in getting this translated into Malay. I've already, got, I've already had an offer to translate it into Bahasa Indonesia, but someone said, this book is important, we need it read in Malaysia. And the best way to get it read in Malaysia is to translate it into Malay. And because Mandarin. And Mandarin. And Mandarin and because it's not written for the readers of the Financial Times only. I deliberately wrote it in the way that, uh, you know, an A-level student can read it and understand the gist of the argument. And so my, my audience is essentially in Asia, starting with ASEAN. So that's really what I'm trying to do here. And I'm trying to get it into the hands of the Prime Minister. He should read it. Yeah, well, I but hope he, so. I, I th I th and I think he will appreciate it. Recently, he's spoken a lot about how development should look like, etc. He's even given the Sovereign Front a different mandate. I believe he's asked Petronas to look at his mandate, etc. Fundamentally, that's what this book is about. All right, man. Hey, thank you for coming in. Thank you. Huge privilege. No, huge, thank you. Huge, enormous privilege. Man. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Great.